Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. I'm Eliza Barkley, Vox's science, health, and climate editor. This April, our podcasts are teaming up to cover some of the most important issues threatening life on Earth. From sustainability to biodiversity to straight-up cool things about the natural world, we'll focus on our planet and its limits in episodes throughout the month. Tune in to Today Explained, Vox Conversations, The Weeds, Unexplainable, Worldly, Future Perfect, and Vox Quick Hits. Want to listen to all the shows? Find them at vox.com slash earthmonth. Hi, this is Benji Jones, reporter for Vox's new initiative, Down to Earth, where I write about the science and politics of the biodiversity crisis. And this week, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. As you may have figured out from reading some depressing headlines over the last few years, we're in something of an extinction crisis. We're losing animals and their genetic lineages like never before. One stat that's particularly devastating is that an estimated 1 million species are threatened with extinction. Yeah, it's pretty bad. But as it turns out, things could be worse. In fact, they probably would be worse if not for a global movement to conserve nature, or simply the conservation movement. In a new book called Beloved Beasts, journalist and author Michelle Nyhouse provides an honest look at the history of that movement and its many characters. I say honest because there are some pretty ugly truths in the origin story that she lays out. Now, of course, conservation has come a long way since then, Michelle writes, but the movement still faces plenty of criticism. I wanted to ask her about it. What lessons have stuck and which haven't? Is there an end in sight for the biodiversity crisis? And if so, what pathways might get us there? Maybe we'll even find some hope. For those of you who don't know her, Michelle is currently a project editor at The Atlantic and a longtime contributing editor at High Country News. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Benji. So writing a book is, of course, a huge undertaking. And so my first question is just, what inspired you to write this book and why now? Well, this book was a huge undertaking because it was an enormous challenge to try to capture the long and very diffuse history of the conservation movement in a reasonably sized book. Uh, I was inspired to write it because I've reported on environmental and conservation issues for a long time and I've always been interested in conservation history, partly because I see that conservationists don't know that much about their own history. I think people who are in the conservation movement, who are interested in conservation, know some iconic names. They've heard of Rachel Carson. They might know Aldo Leopold, the author of A Sand County Almanac, or John Muir, the founder of the Sierra Club. But they don't have a sense of their own movement as a tradition that's had successes and failures and has learned things over time. And so the more I reported on conservation issues, the more I began to think it might be useful to try to capture the story of conservation in an accessible form that both people who are familiar with the conservation movement and aren't could learn something from. I mean, I certainly learned a lot. There were many characters that I knew and and many more that I didn't. And I just wanted to kind of ask what may sound like a basic question, but just what is conservation? Because I think for many, what comes to mind is protecting charismatic pandas or tigers. But I, I'm wondering if that kind of definition that is protecting those species has changed. How would you define conservation? And maybe how has that changed since the beginning of this movement? It's a really good question because, as you say, the definition has changed and also the perception of what conservation is is very different depending on who you ask. So conservation in its most basic sense is just the prevention of waste or loss of, of anything. <laughs> and people have practiced conservation of the species that they depend on for food or shelter since the beginning of human history, of course, people have conserved their local species and their local habitats just out of their own desire for survival and, and often for spiritual or moral reasons as well. 
the modern conservation movement came about in the late 1800s after people realized, somewhat belatedly realized, that their own activities could not only reduce the number of animals they lived beside, but could drive entire species to extinction, you know, could drive them into oblivion forever, sometimes species that they didn't even live next to. And that realization birthed a global movement to protect all species, whether they were useful to humans or not, for the long term. And and so that's what conservation meant at the beginning. I think as the conservation movement has been informed by the science of ecology, it's come to mean not only protecting individual species, but protecting the relationships among them, protecting the relationships between species and their habitats, protecting the relationship between humans and other species. But I think it's still perceived by many members of the public and even by conservationists themselves as a movement to save individual charismatic species. That's the way it began, and that's often how it's most famous successes are framed. We saved the bald eagle or we saved a species of rhino from extinction. And, you know, those are true and those are terrific victories. But I think that perception is a bit misleading in that it doesn't include what the real work of conservation is, which is to preserve species in abundance and in relationship with other species. And in the earliest days, what were the warning signs that some of the famous conservationists picked up on? What kinds of animals were, were being driven to extinction that kind of prompted this outcry for protection? Well, the first species that people heard about were birds on isolated islands that had been driven extinct when Europeans showed up and perhaps either deliberately or unconsciously introduced a whole lot of invasive species that these birds had never encountered before and had not evolved to fend off. So, you know, you have a ship landing on a, an isolated island and all these ground nesting birds have lived there happily for millennia. And all of a sudden, a bunch of dogs and rats and also hungry people show up. So those kinds of species were just not equipped to deal with a sudden change in, in their environment and in the threats that they faced. So people began hearing about those extinctions in the 1800s, but it wasn't until the end of the 1800s, really, that people began to grasp that even physically large, very abundant species could be driven entirely extinct. And one of the first species that people realized was about to blink out was the American bison, the Plains bison in North America, which had been subject to decades of commercial slaughter to supply people on the East Coast of North America and Europeans with fur and with other products. And the numbers of bison were dwindling. And of course, the Native Americans who lived alongside the bison realized this very quickly, but it took quite a while for people on the East Coast to grasp the idea that this species might soon be gone forever. And with the bison specifically, was the push to save that animal driven by a desire for hunting them or the early motivations? Was it was it mostly so that you have literally just game species as a hunter? Well, as I write about in the book, conservation history is full of people who did the right thing for the wrong reasons. <laughs> and right. the bison is a great example of that because the people who did have the foresight and the generosity of spirit really to work to save the bison from extinction were also people who wanted to save it for reasons that we would now consider pretty short-sighted or pretty narrow-minded. They saw it as a symbol of national pride. They saw it, as you say, a species that they wanted to hunt. And they also believed, many of them believed, like many people of the time, that white masculinity was somehow under threat by the rise of industrial society and that, you know, men were just generally spending too much time in offices and were kind of wilting away and <laughs> and needed the backbone stiffening activity of hunting a large animal on the frontier in order to restore themselves. And so the bison was protected, in particular by a man named William Hornaday, who I write about. They were protected for reasons that have very little to do with the bison itself, and in particular, very little to do with the people who were most dependent on the bison which were the Native Americans who 
had depended on the bison for millennia and then within a couple of decades saw their societies devastated by the decline in bison numbers. And they really lost not only their source of protein and warmth, but in a sense, they lost much of their cultural strength and cohesion because of the loss of the species that had been so important to society. And I, I definitely want to get back to kind of the ties into colonialism, et cetera. But um, one thing that really just struck me in what you said is this idea of white masculinity. And I'm wondering if, if it'd be fair to say that some of these figures kind of saw white masculinity as under threat with the decline of certain species. And that was one of the maybe many motivating factors for protecting some of these early animals. It was. And that fear, that fear for the future of white masculinity sometimes spilled over into pretty virulent racism where early conservationists, and this is not to speak generally of all conservationists or even all early conservationists, but there there were prominent people in those early generations of the movement who really equated the survival of their quote-unquote species, <laughs> the Nordic race as they referred to it, with the survival of these species that they you know, genuinely admired and whose future they feared for. So that led them to embrace both fairly farsighted conservation measures, but ironically and, and tragically also very racist policies. Can you go into some of those racist policies or give some examples of how some of these figures have somewhat of a dark past? Well, probably the most notorious figure is Madison Grant, and he wrote a book called The Passing of the Great Race, which was a forthrightly racist book that was widely read in the United States and and also was read, of all people, by Adolf Hitler, who called it later on his quote-unquote Bible. So, wow. uh, yeah, Madison Grant was, I mean, the contradictions are just blinding at times because Madison Grant was... He started his conservation work very young. He was kind of a Manhattan bon vivant, and he he was quite pioneering in conservation work. He was achieved some of the great successes of the early conservation movement at the state level and even at the national level. But at the same time, he was the author of this horrible book that changed the world in extremely dark ways and continues to do so today. It's still quoted sometimes by the violent far right as a justification for some of their actions. And going back to William Hornaday, can you just describe why he's such an important figure within conservation and provide some examples just in terms of why he's also viewed as as pretty controversial if you look back at him today? Yeah, William Hornaday is fascinating. He's such a combination of foresight and narrow-mindedness. <laughs> and in, in some ways, his story and, and what happened to his work after his death to me, encapsulates both the failings and the possibilities of the conservation movement as a whole. He was a taxidermist at what is now the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. He, ironically, when he found out that the bison were in danger of extinction, uh, mounted an expedition to Montana and proceeded to shoot several dozen of the last remaining bison with the idea that he could create a display at the Smithsonian that would shock people into a greater concern for the species, which he did do. And then in later years, he he actually raised a herd of bison in the Bronx on the grounds of the Bronx Zoo, put them on a train and shipped them out to Oklahoma where he released them. And uh, as I said, a lot of his motivation came from a sense of nationalism, a, a concern for white masculinity, And also, he was not sympathetic to the effects of the bison slaughter on Native Americans. And in fact, he continued to blame Native Americans for much of the bison slaughter, contrary to contemporary evidence, which should have told him that uh, white market hunters were responsible for the vast majority of it. But since his shipping of bison out to the prairie, those herds have multiplied and survived, and we have a couple hundred thousand bison on the plains today. And the happy irony of Hornaday's story is that now, in the last couple of decades, there has been a movement to restore bison more fully to the plains, not only to increase their numbers, but also to 
restore some of their former migration patterns and, and restore them to the ecosystem um, in a way that Hornaday wasn't even aware was possible. And that effort is led by Native American tribes and First Nations that were left out of Hornaday's vision in the first place. And I think that movement is one of the most encouraging things that's happening in conservation today because it's bringing a species that's already doing pretty well back to its role in the ecosystem. And it's also connecting a species with its cultural role. And the bison is, of course, extremely important culturally to many Native American tribes and First Nations. And so the benefits of that restoration are just across the board, both for the ecosystem and for the humans who live within it. Yeah, that sounds pretty incredible. So it sounds like he planted somewhat of a seed for modern day restoration of bison. Yeah, he planted the seed and without him, you know, for all his sins and and all his really egregious actions and statements over the years, without his energy and effort, we just simply wouldn't have the species in any kind of workable number. And it's thanks to him that we have enough bison to mount this ambitious restoration effort that is now happening across the continent. One of the bizarre ironies that you mentioned is this idea that when a species seems to be at risk of going extinct, you kind of see people start to hunt them. In the case of bison, that happened. And I think you had an example of a bird, right, as well, that was looking like it might go extinct. That's right. The Carolina parakeet. Is that pretty common, this idea that you have to preserve in taxidermy form the animal that is going to go extinct versus just trying to protect the last remnants? I mean, that like in the early days of conservation, is that pretty common to see that that irony play out? It was pretty common in the early days of conservation because zoos were so rare and people studied birds, especially not by using binoculars as we might today, but by shooting them and collecting what are still called their skins and studying them up close in the lab. And so people did have this, what seems to us now, a contradictory impulse to both protect the species and go out and shoot some of the last few remaining members simply because they thought, oh, if we don't have very many of this species left, we had better shoot some and preserve them so that we at least are able to study them in the future in case the species goes extinct. You don't see that much anymore. I mean, endangerment does sometimes increase the value of a species on the black market and it will become more vulnerable to poaching and so forth because of that. But we now have so many uh, less invasive (laughs) methods, fortunately, of studying species that I think that temptation for scientists has been removed, fortunately. This book has been a real education for me. I've I've been reporting on various environmental issues for a few years now, and I'm familiar with the environmental movement for, for longer than that. And there were many figures that you mentioned that I just, I didn't know anything about. People like Aldo Leopold, I've heard he's credited as being kind of the father of ecology, but there were a lot of other figures that seem to be really, really influential in giving rise to the modern conservation movement. Do you mind explaining which figures kind of stood out to you as being lesser known, but very important for this movement? Sure. Um, That was one of the great pleasures of the book for me, because like you, I reported on environmental issues for a long time and and had a sense of some of these people and had read their work. But there were other people who were completely new to me and I learned a great deal about. And then even the people who were familiar to me often turned out to be much more complicated than I had thought and much more interesting in many ways. One of the activists from the early days of the conservation movement who I really enjoyed getting to know was Rosalie Edge, who was an activist who in the 1920s and 1930s, really took on the Audubon Society, which was, as we talked about, which was at that point dominated by sportsmen. And she said, look, you guys are spending a lot of time protecting the birds that you happen to like, the birds that you like to hunt. If we're a conservation organization, we shouldn't just be about protecting species we like. We should be about protecting species we don't like or consider pests. And she was in particular concerned about the Audubon Society's position on birds of prey, which a lot of sportsmen at the time considered to be pests or kind of gross scavengers. They weren't that interested in protecting them. Even the bald eagle, which was the national bird, they weren't interested (laughs) in protecting that from hunting and poaching. 
And she really rallied the membership in defense of these species and forced the Audubon Society to take a much more expansive view of what conservation was all about. So I, I think her work, both in itself and as an emblem of a larger change, was really an important turning point in the conservation movement. And then another very complicated character who I enjoyed learning about was Julian Huxley, the British biologist who really brought the conservation movement together as a global movement. Uh, He was the founder of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which still serves as kind of the governing body of the conservation movement. It's an intergovernmental organization. And he was also the brother of novelist Aldous Huxley, and the two of them had a lifelong correspondence that was in some ways about conservation that was absolutely fascinating to read about. Just going back to Rosalie Edge for a second, who is Rosalie Edge? What was she before she got involved in in conservation? How was she known? She was a wealthy Manhattanite who, for most of her life, was active in the suffrage movement in the fight to get women the right to vote. And once that was achieved, she stepped back from the suffrage movement and began to look for a new cause. And she became interested in birds and slowly over time came to realize that conservation was a cause that needed people to fight for it as vigorously as people had fought for suffrage. And so she brought a lot of the energy of the suffrage movement into the conservation movement. Why do you think she's not more well-known today? That's a good question. She might not be well-known because she was, for years, she was disliked by the environmental establishment. She was kind of a pain in the neck. (laughs) (laughs) And people sort of wanted, you know, she was telling the conservation movement things that they didn't want to hear, and they would have far preferred that she just go away. It certainly may have been that she was a woman and an older woman who wasn't taken as seriously as she might have been as a public figure. And another thing is that it has taken a long time for us to appreciate the importance of the work she did, because not only did she pester the Audubon Society into expanding its vision, but she founded a raptor sanctuary in Western Pennsylvania called Hawk Mountain Sanctuary that began a record of hawk migration in the 1930s that's still ongoing today. And it is the longest record, ongoing record of raptor migrations that we have. And it became a central piece of data that Rachel Carson used in Silent Spring to make her case against DDT. So it really took decades for us to realize that what Rosalie Edge did in the 1930s led to Rachel Carson's work in the 1960s and finally led to the recovery of the bald eagle in the 80s and 90s and its eventual delisting from the Endangered Species Act in 2011. And just to clarify, the the perspective of Audubon in its early days was that some of these birds of prey were taking out species that people like to hunt. Is that, again, kind of the negative outlook on raptors? Yeah, people thought, I mean, you know, this wasn't a universal opinion, but there was a tendency to think that these species were not as majestic as the species people like to hunt. Sometimes they would prey on the species that people like to hunt because they were scavengers. They were viewed with a little bit of disdain. People just kind of thought they were lesser animals. Mm. And there just wasn't a lot of support for protecting them. The enthusiasm in the conservation movement was more for game birds and for songbirds, you know, very beautiful birds that people already had an appreciation for. It's just so interesting because I feel like it's almost the opposite today when I think of these big raptors. You mentioned the bald eagle as being obviously an iconic American species. It just seems like the opposite today in terms of of what we're trying to conserve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, our attitudes have really changed and people have come to appreciate how striking and powerful those birds are. But I think it's one of many examples of how we apply our own values to these species and how they affect our perspectives on them. Did you visit Hawk Mountain Sanctuary when you were reporting this book? I did, and it was a delightful place. You can still walk up to the lookouts where people have been counting the numbers of birds that pass over every fall since the 1930s. And usually you're up there with a crowd of people who are pretty excited to see these raptors. (laughs) You're up so high that sometimes the birds will fly right under you, you know, will fly along the side of the cliff that you're standing on and you can look down on them and see their backs, which is really Mm. just quite an exhilarating experience. Yeah, I was just going to ask, what was it like to be there knowing kind of the central role that it played in conservation? 
It's always, I. this is a book of history, but I'm a journalist by training and by inclination. So it's always mm-hmm. powerful to be on the scene like that, even if the scene happened a <laughs> hundred years ago. I just, I find it so evocative to go and stand on the same rocks or work in the same library or in the case of Aldo Leopold, sit in the same chicken coop where he did his writing. <laughs> All of those experiences just really fire the imagination, I find. The other person that you mentioned was Julian Huxley, and you mentioned that he kind of helped bring together the movement. Can you just tell me a bit more about why he was such an influential figure? Yeah. Julian Huxley was a British biologist. He was actually the grandson of a very famous defender of Darwin, Thomas Henry Huxley, who was known as Darwin's bulldog because he Hmm. defended Darwin so vociferously. And Julian Huxley had all kinds of interests related to biology and conservation. But later in his life, he came to realize that conservation needed to have a more international scope, that many of the species that were threatened with extinction lived outside North America and Europe, where most of the conservation movement was concentrated. And so he helped form an organization called the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which brought together governments and nonprofit organizations to work together on conservation issues. Now, of course, Julian Huxley's perspective as someone who grew up in the heart of the British Empire was pretty colonial. And some of the patterns that he and his colleagues established, some of the habits of mind of the conservation movement were counterproductive and, and in some ways harmful to both people and other species. But he was pioneering in his vision for an international movement. Yeah, I was going to ask about the ties between colonialism and conservation. Obviously, we know from the story that you told of William Hornaday in the U.S. and and how that impacted indigenous peoples. What are some examples of how that played out overseas when the rise of, as you mentioned, international conservation was happening? Yeah, well, the first conservation efforts or the first efforts of the modern conservation movement outside North America and Europe really traveled along colonial paths. Conservationists in the UK, for instance, would go to colonial governments in Africa and say, look, we think you know you should protect the species by creating a reserve. And what happened when the reserve was created often was that people who had lived on that landscape and managed it often for the long-term health of all species were evicted as squatters, which, you know, of course, had terrible consequences for those communities and really led to a resentment of the conservation movement in general. It came to be seen over decades by many Africans as a movement that was protecting species for the benefit of white foreigners while allowing the burdens of conservation to fall on local people. And it's really only in recent decades that the conservation movement has recognized the harms and, you know, not only the ethical and moral problems with that approach, but just the practical effects of it because it has so hampered the spread of the conservation movement and has kept it as a movement that is still largely white and is still largely based in wealthy countries. Let's take a quick break. But when we're back, over the past few decades, we've lost hundreds of plants and animal species to extinction. So things are admittedly looking a bit grim. But at the same time, wildlife conservationists have been hard at work for years. So what I want to know is, has it helped? We'll find out after the break. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Something I think a lot about is just whether conservation is working at all or how well it's working. And often, to be honest, the conclusion I come to is no. As you write in the book, and I'm quoting here, over the last 500 years, the planet has lost 755 animal species and 123 plant species. People are still killing too many animals and destroying too much habitat. So my question for you 
is, has conservation worked? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's when I ask myself almost on a daily basis, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is that I wanted to show that conservation has worked in some very identifiable ways in the past. You know, there are certainly species and assemblages of species and landscapes that we wouldn't have were it not for the conservation movement and the efforts of some of the people I write about. And I think too often we forget that, you know, people who are interested in in environmental issues and in the conservation movement are always focused understandably on the next emergency, on the next set of extinctions. Right. And we don't look back and say, wow, it, it's not enough, but it's amazing that we have these species that very well might have gone extinct were it not for farsighted people who stood up for them. I mean, we would have very few songbirds were it not for the mostly women who stood up against the feather trade in the early 1900s. The feather trade was killing millions and millions of birds every year to decorate hats. And a lot of women stood up and said, this is crazy, you know, and due to their work, we got the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which protects most species of birds from slaughter. So I think, you know, there are huge victories that we don't really take into account when we're thinking about whether wildlife conservation has worked. And the other thing that gives me some hope, and my hope is measured, but I do have hope, (laughs) uh, is that the conservation movement has learned a lot over the past century. It's expanded its ambitions and it's learned what species need through the science of conservation biology and ecology. We, We know what species need to survive. And we didn't know that for a long time. Of course, there's always uncertainty, but we can now estimate with a great deal of sophistication what kind of habitat a species needs, how much space it needs, um, what other species it needs to live alongside. And so what we don't know and what we haven't paid enough attention to, I think, is how human behavior needs to change to provide species with those things that they need for survival. And conservation has been slow to incorporate social science and human behavior into its work and to really look at, okay, we know what needs to be done, but how do we get there? How do we persuade people what policies are going to work to protect these resources? How are we going to reduce the short-term costs of conservation? There are almost always some short-term costs. How are we going to reduce the short-term cost for people so that they can enjoy the long-term benefits. So I think we are going, in many ways, we are going in the wrong direction in wildlife conservation. You know, the threats are mounting. But at the same time, I do have hope because I feel like there's so much possibility. And so I, I hoped with this book to push back against the feeling among many people and the feeling I have sometimes too is that the apocalypse is underway and there's not much we can do, that we're just sort of sliding toward tragedy. I think that that's not true at all. We still have a lot of options. We have a lot of possibilities. And the question is whether we're going to take advantage of them. I, I really I really liked how you put it in terms of the need for a better understanding of human complexity as part of the problem. We have a lot of research in understanding what we've lost and what we need, but we need some more human aspects or an understanding of how economics works related to conservation. Is that a good way of putting it? Yeah. Yeah, that's very much so. Yeah. When I think about conservation and whether we know enough to actually start doing more things or implementing more conservation initiatives, I think about how simple some other reasons are of why animals go extinct, right? If you cut down a forest, you lose what's inside. So I'd love to just hear some details from you on what kinds of different models or methods you've come across that seem to be working from more of a human complexity side of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're right in that many of the reasons why we're continuing to lose species are very simple. You know, we're still just killing too many animals. We're over-exploiting animals. We're destroying their habitat. And the question is, how can we maintain people's livelihoods, but also help conserve species and habitats for the long term? And one of the most successful efforts I'm aware of is a project I got to visit in Southern Africa, in Namibia, while I was researching the book. And it's now been around for about 30 years. It's a system of community conservancies where people who are mostly subsistence hunters and farmers have a great deal of influence in how to manage their local wildlife. So they have the ability to set hunting quotas. 
They have the ability to manage large species that are sometimes destructive or dangerous. And they can train and employ their own game guards, who are usually members of the community, to help control poaching of large or valuable animals. And over the decades, this has had a number of really positive practical results. The the numbers of black rhino, which were down to almost nothing in northern Namibia, are now pretty good. It's a pretty healthy population of black rhinos, and, and other populations have recovered as well. But also the social impacts, the less tangible impacts are also significant. And I got to go to some annual meetings where mm. people were, you know, arguing about the details of how species were going to be managed in their communities and so forth. And and those meetings, while they were sometimes messy and chaotic, were so inspiring to me because I kept thinking, you know, I've been to a lot of these meetings in North America where people have a lot more resources and a lot more time and they don't get nearly as much done. These members of the conservancies have traveled a long way and sat around for a long time because they care about the long-term future of the species they live next to. Even the species that are a pain in their neck sometimes, you know, they don't want these species to go extinct. You know, they want to be able to hunt them for food, but they also just generally want them around. They have pride in them and they they know that they have some influence over their future. So seeing that kind of investment by everyday people, these weren't professional conservationists, these were just people who were making a living on the landscape. It was very inspiring to me to see that potential for broadening the work of conservation, that people who were not professionally part of the movement could realize some of the benefits of conservation, could be relieved of some of the burdens, and then could participate in moving it forward. Yeah, I really I really love that example. How do those conservancies work? They're essentially like community-based conservation programs? Yeah, they started on a very small scale in the 1980s, and they are established by individual communities who live on communally owned land in northern Namibia. And the communities organize themselves as a conservancy. They elect their own leaders, and then they hold regular meetings where some of these management decisions are made. And then they they also work with the nonprofit organization that provides technical support. And they also work with the national government, who in turn works with international organizations on the management and assessment of endangered species. So they're really what it does is it restores a level of authority to the management of species that has been missing since the days of colonialism. Mm. And I think certainly the situation in North America is extremely different, most prominently because there are not a lot of subsistence hunters and farmers here, but there are some of the same resentments and divides. And I think we could learn a lot from the example of what's happening in Namibia, just in terms of uncovering what I think is a very common willingness among most people to help their local species survive for the long term. I think regardless of your politics, if we could all take a truth serum and and be asked about what we really think about our local animals, I don't think many of us would say, yeah, get rid of them. I think that people are, are willing to go to some trouble to protect species. You know, they may have all kinds of ideas about, you know, how the government wants to interfere in their lives or or how the protection of a species might affect their livelihoods. But beyond that, if those kinds of fears and real impacts can be addressed in some way, I think there is broad support for protecting species over the long term. You mentioned there's a real opportunity to learn from these examples. And I'm just wondering if you think we are learning. Is the modern conservation movement incorporating some of these lessons, many of which you lay out in the book, into how we do conservation today? Like, where are we at now? Yes, I think these lessons are being incorporated into the conservation movement. And there are lots of community-led conservation efforts going on around the world. It's a very active part of the conservation movement. I do think there's a long way to go, especially in the way that the conservation movement presents itself to the public. I think if you you talk to professional conservationists, they're very aware that this is where conservation needs to go in the future. But often conservation organizations present themselves to their supporters as organizations that are still about protecting 
individual iconic species from extinction. And I, I think that's a message that people think will resonate because it's relatively simple. But I hope that the conservation movement and, and then the media that covers the conservation movement can take some risks and try to tell some more complex stories and not just use extinction or the threat of extinction as our only news hook. Right. <laughs> because there is a lot of exciting stuff going on in conservation. And, you know, some of it is complicated and some of it, you know, looks relatively wonky and bureaucratic from the outside. But once you get into it, there are amazing success stories and amazing stories of human ingenuity and I hope to see that become better known, not only within the conservation movement, but in, you know, the broader public that supports right. conservation organizations. But it's just tough. I mean, when you look at all the data, like all the metrics, it just doesn't look good at all, right? Like, I, I understand that extinction is not the most effective method to use to understand where we're at right now. But across the board, it just really seems like things are moving in the wrong direction. It feels like there's very little hope. What do you tell people who just point to the data and be like, this is not going well? <laughs> I tell them I agree. <laughs> and I <laughs> I totally sympathize with the focus on extinction because it is irreversible. I mean, regardless of what some people might tell you about creating elephant woolly mammoth hybrids, <laughs> there is no reversing extinction. And so the conservation movement and, and the public at large, I think, understandably focuses on extinction. But you know, at the same time, if we aren't able to at least shift part of our attention to these longer term efforts that are trying to protect species while they're still common to some extent, are trying to put in place structures that will conserve species broadly rather than yeah. just one by one. If we don't shift some of our attention to those efforts, we're just going to have more and more and more extinctions. So, I mean, I think it's a very human problem of you know, do we focus on the crisis or do we focus on the long-term solution? And it's a problem that's inherent in all kinds of things that we're facing as a society. But I do hope that people can recognize that there are other stories to tell. And I also think that it is as important as it can seem to focus on, you know, every looming extinction. It also can backfire because people do get tired of or numb to you know, the constant drumbeat of, well, this is going to be extinct. Totally. And then next year, this other species is going to be extinct. And that's not to say those things aren't completely true. But I think that not telling one or two of those stories and instead telling a story of what's actually being done to shift the pattern could go a long way. Yeah, sometimes it feels like literally every story is exactly the same. It's like, oh, here's what we've lost. Great. <laughs> right. You could almost, you know, write a Mad Libs <laughs> literally. about these stories. And, and I think we feel an obligation as environmental reporters to tell these stories because it feels like, okay, I can, you know, maybe I can do something for these species, but I would like to see us get more strategic. Well, I was very excited to talk with you because I want to focus a bit on some of these more hopeful stories. And I, yeah, as I mentioned, I love the example in Namibia. What are some other examples that indicate to you that there are lots of successes? What are some of those stories that are really positive? Well, I think we're seeing a global rise in these indigenous-led conservation efforts. And there's a real push to include the recognition of indigenous land rights in what's called the 30 by 30 initiative, which is a push to protect 30% of the globe's land and waters by 2030. And if those goals are incorporated into the Convention on Biological Diversity, as they may be toward the end of this year, and those goals include the affirmation of indigenous land rights and give people some long-term security to start managing their lands for the long-term health of both their own livelihoods and, and other species, I think that could be a really exciting global shift. You know, we're always going to need parks and reserves because we've done so much damage to other kinds of habitats. We're always going to need to protect large landscapes where there aren't very many people at all. But we also need to protect places where people are making a living off the landscape, but they are doing it in such a way that other species can live alongside them. And we know that indigenous communities are great stewards of biodiversity as well, right? 
Yeah, we know from, I mean, and this is not to generalize about indigenous communities, which of course have a variety of goals for their lands, and it's not to suggest that the global burden of conservation should be put on indigenous communities in any way. But, you know, we know from research and experience over many years that when subsistence societies have a secure claim to their land, they know they're going to be there for, you know, the foreseeable future. They're not going to see their ancestral land overrun by a mine or some other kind of industrial development, when they have that kind of security, they can either revive or put in place practices that are extremely effective in protecting biodiversity. One thing I think about as well, just going back to whether things are working, is the idea of scale. So when we talk about some of these examples of successes, whether it's Namibia or with the bison in the U.S., they seem hyper-localized. And that is kind of a depressing thought to me because I think about the scale of the problem and then I think about these kind of one-off solutions. Is that something that you think about? Do you think scale is relevant here or do you think that's just the wrong way of thinking about it? No, I get very depressed when I think about the small scale of some conservation successes. And also I get depressed about timescales as well. Some of these efforts that are successful have taken decades and decades to get to where they are today. And it often feels like we're starting too late with too little. That said, both the bison effort and the conservation effort in Namibia are actually quite large scale. They started small, but the effort to restore bison in North America that's being led by tribes is is really a continent-wide strategy. And I think It has the potential to have a significant impact on the health of the ecosystem and also on the health of human communities. You know, I I get very depressed about tiny pilot projects that seem to be working well because I think, well, that's great, but when is it really going to have an effect? But I, I see the bison project as one that has gone well beyond that and really could, you know, have an impact on the scale where we need to have an impact. And then then the Namibia conservancies as well, they started out very small and grassroots, but they're now a national institution. They've been around for decades and other countries have either come up with their own versions of those conservancies or followed Namibia's example. But those are examples of institutions that could be replicated and again, could spread on a global scale. And indigenous lands are obviously all over the world. So in some ways giving land tenure back to Indigenous people is a very elegant way to help this problem, right? Yeah. I mean, of course, estimates vary because we're talking about informal and customary land claims, but some studies estimate that the land managed by rural communities and Indigenous communities covers something like 50% of our land surface. So these are not tiny little enclaves we're talking about. You know, this could be a seismic shift. Your book is obviously important because it it lays out the history of the movement and a lot of the mistakes so that we maybe don't make them again. And you, you mentioned 30 by 30. So it's this initiative to protect 30% of land and water globally by 2030. The U.S. has signed on to it and 50 other countries have also made this pledge. And so I guess getting into some of the details here, what is your best guess at how to do this right? How do we make sure to not uproot indigenous communities while trying to protect 30% of the entire planet? Well, I mean, to me, 30 by 30 is really an exciting initiative because it's so large scale and could be potentially so meaningful, both for people and, and other species and for ecosystems. I think it has raised very understandable fears among some anti-poverty groups, social justice groups, uh, rural communities, rural and indigenous communities, because If you just say, you know, at its very simplest form, protecting 30% of the planet by 2030 suggests that we're going to establish, you know, reserves on 30% of the planet that exclude people and keep people from making their livelihoods in these places, uh, which would obviously might be okay for other species, but would obviously be devastating for people's livelihoods and and would create enormous secondary problems that no one, I think, wants to see. So I think it's really important, and the supporters of 30 by 30 have been very clear that they are thinking about the social dimensions of their proposal, and they do support the recognition of indigenous land rights. But I think it's very important for the conservation community to keep insisting that indigenous rights must be part of 30 by 30 in order for it to be not only morally and ethically sustainable, but in order for it to be effective 
we are not going to be able to establish reserves on 30% of the planet and then patrol all of them to keep people out. That's just not practical and it's not morally something that I think anyone should want to see happen. So I feel very hopeful about 30 by 30, but I have a I share some of the hesitations of its critics, and I think it's very important for the whole message to be delivered over and over again in that we're not just talking about drawing lines around landscapes. We're talking about trying to accomplish conservation in a way that works for humans as well as the rest of life on Earth. One thing that 30 by 30 reminds me of is the Wildlands Network, which you mentioned in the book, because I think initially you have this idea of setting aside 30% of the planet, delineating areas that are going to be just for nature and not for people, not taking into consideration the human complexities. And that sounds similar to the Wildlands Network in that it was very much rooted in just conservation biology, but not incorporating the social aspects of it. So would that be a good example of how to add complexity to make 30 by 30 better than what that project was? Yeah, I think the Wildlands Project was one of several proposals to preserve large landscapes, you know, on a continental scale. And I think the proponents of those projects in the 90s and 2000s, and they they do exist today, of course, still, the proponents of those projects do acknowledge, oh, okay, you know, these large landscapes have to include places that people inhabit as well, their vision is is not, in most cases, for, you know, national parks that stretch for thousands of miles, you know, from Alaska to Mexico. But they have been caricatured that way. And then some of their proponents have been, I would say, very vociferous in their desire to protect large landscapes that do exclude people, that their attitude is often, oh, well, humans can only be a destructive force. They can't play a constructive role in conserving species and landscapes. And I hope that 30 by 30 has learned from those experiences because some of them did crash and burn because of the hostility they engendered. I think there's an opportunity for 30 by 30 to say, look, the scientific principles that those proposals embraced are really important. We do need to connect habitats so that large animals can move around. We do need large habitats available to animals. Those things are true, but we have to figure out how to do them in a way that works for people as well. And that's not to say we have to water down our goals or anything like that. I think we just need to look for ways, as I said, to reduce the costs of conservation for ordinary people and help them realize some of the benefits and and in that way uh, make it possible for people to make a living as well as do what's needed to be done to ensure the future of other species. We talked a, a fair bit about just some of the dark roots of the conservation movement. And I'm wondering, coming back to today, has the modern movement faced kind of the ugliness of its past? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. I think one example is the Sierra Club, which is right now in a very genuine and serious reckoning with the legacy of its founder, John Muir, who who not only used some very racist language, even by the standards of his own time, but also treated landscapes or some landscapes as places where people had never lived. For instance, talking about Yosemite as if it were a new made field and kind of treating the indigenous people who lived there as kind of interlopers on the landscape instead of as people who had lived there for thousands of years. And I think those attitudes are not as perhaps easy to discern as as racist language that people have used in the past, but in some ways they're more destructive to the goals of the conservation movement because they do support this, what I think is a delusion, that there are places on earth that have no human history, are few, if any, places like that. And, you know, we can protect those places, we can protect those habitats and those species while still acknowledging that there is a human history and in many cases a human presence on those landscapes. And I hope that the Sierra Club and other organizations that have those ideas in their past and in some cases in their present will surface them and look at them closely and and acknowledge them and move past them. But you are seeing that happening in terms of the Sierra Club and others recognizing that and trying to right that wrong now? I am seeing that. I'm seeing a very serious reckoning with it, a very earnest reckoning with it. And of course, I think environmental 
groups and conservation groups in general have evolved a lot in recent decades. There is much more awareness of the importance of quote-unquote environmental justice, efforts to protect human health through clean air and clean water protections. There's much more awareness of that as part of conservation work, which of course it is, and many more efforts to integrate that into efforts to save species and landscapes. So this is not a a new realization, but I think there is a new, uh, especially over the past year, as the nation and the world have gone through a a new depth of racial reckoning. There's an awareness that there's a lot of work that still needs to be done and that excavating some of this history and bringing it to the surface and examining how it affects the work of those organizations today is a big part of that. And, And conservation today is still predominantly white, right? It's predominantly white. It's Of course, it's changed a lot from its founding. It's much more diverse by many measures. But yeah, I think it's fair to say that establishment conservation organizations, what are sometimes called the big green groups, are still predominantly white and predominantly wealthy, and in many cases, predominantly led by men. And I think Part of the reckoning with the legacy of some of these figures in conservation's past is to create organizations that are much more diverse today and are are much more diverse in their perspectives and approaches to what is, after all, a universal problem. Would you agree that overall the big green groups, and I'm talking about WWF, the Nature Conservancy, Sierra Club, they are overall a force of good today. I think so. I I mean, it, it's of course hard to generalize, but we, speaking broadly as people of all descriptions, have many, many, many reasons to be grateful for the work that they've done. There are a lot of examples of things that they have done wrong that have been harmful or counterproductive. But I would say, just speaking very broadly, they have been successful in introducing the idea of conservation into modern society and continuing to wrestle with the problem of how to preserve other species while still making a living ourselves. Well said. Um, So getting back to this idea of hope, as someone who has spent most of my career thinking about the environment in one way or another, I I find it hard to come by, um, (laughs) especially when the narrative is that we're losing everything, as we've talked about. So I guess just point blank, do you have hope that we'll stop a, quote, sixth mass extinction? (laughs) It's a good question. I take refuge in, in a quote that I include at the beginning of the book from Aldo Leopold. Leopold was a very optimistic person, but when he was at one point in a very grim mood, he wrote to a friend of his and said, that the situation is hopeless should not prevent us from doing our best. And Mm. I really hang on to that idea because it is hard to be hopeful. I mean, it's hard to look at the facts of where we are and where we're going and feel anything that looks like the usual idea of hope. (laughs) But I think history is a source of hope for me because I look back at these people many of whom we think of as great icons today, but who were not often considered icons in their time, certainly didn't go around thinking of themselves as icons, and often didn't have much reason to hope themselves. They were working in the midst of a world war or during the crisis of the Dust Bowl, or, you know, they were facing problems that, you know, we now know were resolved in one way or another, but to them must have seemed overwhelming. And it There was no clear way to resolve the Dust Bowl, for instance. Uh, There was no certainty that the world wasn't going to be in crisis for the rest of time. So I try to put myself in their shoes and think, well, they didn't have any certainty that the future was going to, you know, quote unquote, work out. (laughs) They were facing a lot of what seemed like overwhelming problems at the time. And they didn't have any sense that they were going to become icons, that their work was going to be admired by future generations. They didn't even know if they were headed in the right direction. They just kept doing what they thought was right. And I think that's the option that we have available to us. I think that's the alternative to despair that we all have. And so did reporting this book give you that perspective or change your perspective? And what did you walk away with? I think I went into it thinking that 
optimism or some kind of measured optimism was a choice. <laughs> it was an, a position I took for ethical reasons because, you know, despair, where does despair get you? <laughs> you know, it just, right, it, right. <laughs> what happens after you despair? You sit on the couch, and you do nothing. Um, it seems better to do something than to do nothing. But the process of writing this book really did give me some genuine reasons to feel encouraged. I was persuaded that we have a lot of options available to us, that people have come up with solutions to some of these very difficult, seemingly intractable problems, and that those solutions are things that could be widely adopted and really make a difference for us. I think it's important to remember that we can't save everything. There are going to be more extinctions. You know, some of the bad news will come to pass and is coming to pass, but that doesn't mean all is lost. There are almost always opportunities to do some good yeah. somewhere. And I think we have to grab those opportunities. I, I totally agree. I think in my mind, I kind of went through a re reorientation when I realized that we're going to lose some of our most at-risk species today. And there's still a lot left to save, right? Like maybe we'll lose, I don't know, the pangolin or something. And I hate to think about losing anything, but there's still things we can do. Yeah, we are going to experience real tragedies. There's no doubt about it. And I think the best way to respond to those tragedies is to do more to prevent the next one. We're getting close to the end here, but I did want to just come back to one thing. We've talked a lot about playing offense in conservation and different initiatives to protect animals, et cetera. What about defense? I mean, how much of the problem that we're facing today in terms of the biodiversity crisis is, I don't know, fueled by oil and gas industry, for example? How much should we be playing more defense versus offense? How do you think about that? I think that is where the conservation movement can ally and work really productively with the climate movement. Industrial development is destroying habitat, of course, but it's also destroying the climate. And while climate change is not the most direct threat to most species on Earth, not yet, <laughs> if we don't solve the climate crisis, it's certainly going to be a broad-scale threat to species in the future. So I think what the climate movement is doing to rein in industrial development and to shift our societies to more sustainable sources of energy those are all things that are going to benefit conservation. And I think those are places where these two movements, which really do need each other and, and often aren't in conversation as, as often as they should be, can connect and work with one another for similar causes. Totally, totally. Um, what is one fact that you found most surprising while reporting this book? I don't know if it was surprising, but the, one of the most satisfying things about the book was discovering how much the characters I wrote about were in contact with each other. Uh, we do think about them as isolated figures, but these people were learning from each other. They were disagreeing. They were agreeing. They were helping one another, giving each other advice. For instance, Rosalie Edge and William Hornaday met up and really hit it off despite their very different uh, walks of life and interests. There was a testy exchange between Rosalie Edge and Aldo Leopold, who agreed on, on many principles, but Aldo Leopold, who was kind of a mild-mannered Midwesterner, thought that Rosalie Edge was taking things a bit far rhetorically. <laughs> she cheerfully responded that, you know, she wasn't there to make friends. And <laughs> so those kinds of exchanges were just fun to find out about. And they really deepened my understanding of all the people involved. They gave each person a lot more dimension and depth because they allowed me to think of them as, as someone who was working in collaboration with others and not just working by themselves on a lonely mission for change. I love that you told a character-based story here because all of my experience in, in conservation is coming at it more just from a hard science perspective. So it's just nice to see these really complicated, interesting characters shape the movement from the very beginning. <laughs> One thing that made me, made me laugh out loud was I mentioned the testy exchange between kind of fiery Rosalie Edge and, and mild-mannered Aldo Leopold. And I got to have lunch with Aldo Leopold's daughter, who's now in her 90s, and I shared... Amazing. Yeah, it was a delight, and I shared that exchange with her, and she was familiar with Rosalie Edge and hadn't known that her dad had corresponded with her, and she <laughs> she wrote me a note afterwards and said, you can just tell that dad was 
puzzled by this woman. <laughs> and I thought that was so funny because it was very clear from his tone that he was puzzled by this woman. <laughs> Aldo Leopold is so poised and so eloquent in all of his writing. And I just love the idea of him being a little flummoxed by this upstart conservationist from New York City who was telling the Audubon Society to get a clue. But there there were times when I was just, I would say, overwhelmed by some of the things I got to witness, either the beauty or sometimes the tragic implications of things that I got to witness just made me well up. I think that that's one of the risks and rewards of reporting is that you get to see things firsthand and you get to feel them in your gut. Hmm, that's beautiful. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for speaking with me. It's It's been such a pleasure. And I, I feel like I read the book, but I learned so much more during this call. So thank you again for taking the time to chat. Thank you. And thank you for your great questions. It was fun. This week's episode of Vox Conversations was produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drastaska. Paul Monsi mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Liz Kelly Nelson is our editorial director of Vox Podcast. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests, guest hosts, or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review, and come back next week for a brand new episode. And one more thing. How would you like to produce this show or other Vox Talk podcasts? We're looking for a producer and an editorial director to join the Vox Audio team. Learn more and apply at vox.com forward slash careers. That's vox.com forward slash careers. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.